America's Weekend Magazine, a special news and public affairs feature presented by 96.3 News Radio KKOB. I'm John Summers with an invitation to stay tuned as we focus on topics of interest that impact your life. We begin the program with an interview in which I sat down this week with the commander of the 58th Special Operations Wing located at Kirtland Air Force Base. Colonel Michael Curry was more than gracious in allocating quite some time within his busy schedule to provide some very interesting conversation about not only the origins of his special operations wing, but the various responsibilities involved and the uniqueness of the unit which he directs here in Albuquerque. His desire is to help New Mexicans understand more fully what goes on day to day with the 58th. Let's start off the discussion with some background. The wing actually came here in 1994. It uh, started out under a different different name before it became the 58th Special Operations Wing. Came out of Hill Air Force Base and really moved down here to take advantage of those unique training environments here. It started out not as special operations. In fact, uh, there were some uh, fighter training that's done, and you know this wing can tr- trace its li- lineage back a really long ways. But since we started with the special operations and air air combat command, we have really been focused on on that. And so, really, since 1994 on, you've seen all of those crew members. We started out with MH53s and Talon twos and the older versions of the HH60, and now as the new tech, the newest technology for special operations and Air Force rescue comes, it's coming right here to. Kirtland first. We've got the three of the very first uh, HH-60 Whiskey, which are the new combat rescue helicopters, the Jolly Green 2. Three of those are out there. The CB-22s are some of the most advanced uh, aircraft that we have in the, in the Air Force inventory. And we will shortly be bringing on the AC-130J as another missionary that will be coming out here. That's uh, the newest gunship for Air Force Special Operations Command. And all coming right out here to uh, Kirtland. Why New Mexico? Why why Kirtland Air Force Base? Why is that where we concentrate so much of our helicopter uh, and special operations training? And, and it's an incredibly unique environment. It's one you can't really replicate anywhere else. So first off, we started Albuquerque being at uh, almost 6,000 feet of elevation. It starts to already make it challenging for our, our crew members to fly in. And then in, you put the close proximity of the mountains, the volcanic ash that's everywhere that makes that, that dust that suspended in the air more easily to make those even more challenging brownout conditions. And then you push that out with the uh, with some of the more rural areas, allows us to, to fly and, and really test our skills. That's what makes uh, New Mexico unique, and that's what really draws us here at the 58th Special Operations Wing to get out and, and do that flying. So we're excited to be part of the community. Really couldn't ask for better hosts, and we're glad we can train in this environment. Sir, what is it about your wing that makes it unique? John, you know, it's not just one thing that makes it unique. This is a wing that Air Education and Training Command has put together all the unique pieces into one place, and so I, I'm lucky enough to be able to command it. But uh, to kind of walk through the uniqueness of it in a few different levels. One, uh, we do undergraduate flight training. So by undergraduate, I mean before um, our pilots have received their wings, their, their basic level of instruction, we do all of the Air Force's helicopter pilot training. And then after they graduate from there, they could come here to Kirtland, where we primarily do what we call graduate flying training, which is uh, training in specific airplanes and helicopters or tilt rotor aircraft for uh, employment by Air Combat Command, Air Force Global Strike Command, 
Air Force Special Operations Command, Air Force District of Washington, and uh, other partners that we have here. So that's pretty incredible breadth in those two things. And then when it wasn't quite unique enough, we also add our SEER training, the Survival Evasion Resistance and Escape Training. That's primarily headquartered out of uh, Fairchild Air Force Base in Washington State. But we there we train uh, everyone in the Air Force that it would be at risk of capture or exploitation. We train them in those skills that they would need to include survival and resistance. Uh, and we also have, as part of that, we train some folks in Arctic survival all the way up in Isleson Air Force Base, which is Fairbanks, Alaska. And we uh, train some other folks in uh, San Antonio, Texas for some of those things. So that's a little bit of how we're unique. I would think with the survival training and escape training that you offer, it would cover most every region of the world. It does. And that's what's unique really about Washington State and where we do this training. I never would have thought in Washington State you could find all the biomes. That's what the SEER specialists call the different areas of the world you may need to survive in. So they do a coast tropics uh, phase where they focus in on that kind of littoral environment. They also do a desert survival. Who knew that Washington State had a desert environment, but they do. Uh, they do high mountains. They do uh, forested areas. And then, like I said, we also have the Arctic piece that uh, happens up in, uh, in Alaska. Uh, but they're able to get some pretty cold temperatures in Washington State, too. What is it on a day-to-day -day basis that you find most challenging in this operation? I would say the, the most challenging piece is being a, uh, a good host to all of the training that we provide across the 58th Special Operations Wing. We can't just focus on helicopters or on CV-22s or C-130s or even our survival and evasion training. We've got, to be, we've got to be good suppliers of qualified crew members that go into all of those facets every single day. In fact, we produce about 12,000 graduates a year out of the 58 Special Operations Wing. So if you think about that, that's roughly uh, uh, about 1,000 a month that are coming through our doors in order to, to make sure that the Air Force is supplied with what they need to, to fight and win our nation's wars. That's a larger graduation group than most universities have it. We don't, we don't have the graduations, you know, per se, with cap and gown or even big ceremonies. A lot of our programs are shorter in duration, some of which may last only a week, but some uh, last several months long, depending on which program they're going through. Can you give us an idea of uh, just what a typical student would experience in these courses? So a typical student that comes to our uh, undergraduate helicopter training at Fort Rucker, Alabama, is a brand new commissioned uh, second lieutenant that's very interested in flying helicopters. They show up, uh, some right now, with no other flight training experience whatsoever. And we take them in a period of about nine months from zero hours in a helicopter to fully qualified helicopter crewmen. On the enlisted side, uh, we'll bring them in. Once again, they will have come through basic training at Lackland Air Force Base. So then they go to what we call our center of excellence, which they learn a little bit about what it takes to be a special mission aviator crew member. So an enlisted crew member in the, in the back of the helicopter. And then they go maybe to Fort Rucker, Alabama, uh, also through a, a program there to, to take them from zero flight time to qualified helicopter crew member in a period of just months. I've heard uh, friends who were helicopter pilots say that it's the most difficult piece of aviation equipment to handle. Is that true? 
I'm not a helicopter pilot, so I'd have to say no, right? Because uh, whatever we fly is the most difficult piece of equipment to handle. But yes, helicopter flight training is, is really about being a, a pilot and really about feeling what's going on inside the helicopter and being able to react to it. So it's not just not just hands and eyes, but it's hands, feet, and eyes all in coordination together to make the machine do what you want the machine to do. And that's what we spend a lot of time on. What happens with the graduates? Where do they go? What do they end up doing as far as their career is concerned? So those graduates of Fort Rucker, Alabama, they all come here and they do graduate flying training. So that's where we bring them in to fly the HH-60, which is the, the Black Hawk looking helicopter here that primarily serves our rescue community, Air Force Rescue and Air Combat Command. Uh, we also have CV-22 pilots that will come in here from, they go from Fort Rucker, they go out to uh, uh, Marine Corps Air Station and, and then come here after that to fly the CV-22. We do a graduate training program for our uh, folks for Global Strike Command that go out into the missile fields and do nuclear site support. And then we also train some distinguished visitor transport uh, pilots. So they come all come here for their graduate training. And after a period of uh, months here, some just a couple months and some much longer, uh, they'll go out to their operational units. And when they go out to those units, they're right in the thick of things for Air Force Special Operations Command, uh, Air Combat Command, or Global Strike. Or what I tell the students every Tuesday when they start classes here is, if you're interested in flying from one long runway to another long runway in the middle of the day, you're in the wrong place. Instead, what I can promise them is each day they go get ready to take off on a real mission. We'll probably give them an airplane that uh, maybe isn't completely um, up to, you know, it doesn't have everything working in it. We'll probably launch them into the darkest night they've ever been in, likely in some of the worst weather they've ever seen, and probably not told them all that well what the mission's going to be. But we train them here so that they can react to those situations um, and they can, they can go out and prevail. Can you tell me about how many permanent staff and crew are uh, working at any given day here on the base? So in our wing, across all the locations, we're at the, the six locations, it's about 2,730 or so uh, folks there here. And that bridges about 200 officers, about 700 enlisted, um, or I'm sorry, about 900 enlisted. And then we go on from there uh, to made up of civilians and contractors that uh, make up this wing. Okay, you mentioned six locations. Can you name them, please? Absolutely. I'll go east to west. Okay. And so we start out Marine Corps Air Station New River out on the in North Carolina. That's where we do our MV-22 training. So every CV-22 pilot has to become an MV-22 pilot first before they come here. Then moving further to Alabama, we get to Fort Rucker, Alabama. That's where we do our undergraduate helicopter pilot training. The next piece would be Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. There we do two things. We take all aspiring SEER specialists, how to become survival evasion resistance escape specialists. They go through their initial course right after basic training there. And in addition to that, we also train emergency conduct after capture, which is those folks that don't get the entirety of a, of a long, long SEER survival training program, but need some form of training before they deploy. We call that just-in-time training. They come there and they go through our, our, our four-day course, and then they go on their deployment right afterwards. Continuing moving west, we get to Kirtland Air Force Base. Kirtland, here's where we do the preponderance of our graduate flying training. It encompasses all those, uh, those aircraft that we mentioned. 
Fairchild Air Force Base in Washington. We actually have two different missions there. We have the Survival Evasion Resistance Escape Training. That's where its headquarters is and where we do the preponderance of the, uh, the training. And we have an operational helicopter squadron there. In addition to supporting the SEER school, also does real-world uh, rescue missions when, uh, when tasked through the uh, rescue coordination cell. So you'll see sometimes when, uh, when we'll go out to do those. And then the, finally, the last location is Ielson Air Force Base, Alaska. It's affectionately known as the Cool School. It's uh, where we train Arctic survival, and they only execute that training during the winter months. Uh, so it's, a, it's quite an interesting time to be up there. The part that most excites me about what we do, we sometimes look at training as something we do uh, it, just to get us ready for the operational. But really what we're doing here is we take folks that are combat experienced, that have been spending, you know, some of them their entire career has been nothing but deployments. So we bring them back here to the school, and then we ask them to impart that knowledge on the next generation. And the, the most important thing they do is not just tell them about the experience that they've had, but how they can be more successful than the instructors we've got. And when you're talking about being more successful than the instructors here, we've got folks that are distinguished Flying Cross recipients, single mission air medals with valor, bronze star medals, folks that have done incredible things downrange in some of the most widely publicized missions and some of those that you haven't really read about in the paper. You know, those are the folks that are training that next generation. And so that's what's uh, super special about it here. And it's not just on our military side, it's on our civilian contractor side too. Just recently went to a retirement for an individual that was in the second airplane that flew across Grenada, did the airdrop at Point Salinas, high metals and, and the like. Those are the folks that we're calling upon every single day to train this next generation. And that's what's really special, I think. Right here in Albuquerque. Right here in Albuquerque. That was a visit with Colonel Michael Curry, commander of the 58th Special Operations Wing at Kirtland Air Force Base. To gain a better understanding of the unit and see some photos, head to the Kirtland website and look up the 58th Special Operations Wing. I'm John Summers, your host for Weekend Magazine. Up next, a recent interview from News Radio KKOB's morning host, Bob Clark, chatting with Rio Rancho Mayor Greg Hall about the Intel decision to pour more investment dollars into the mayor's city. $3.5 billion investment expansion of the facility there in Rio Rancho. And joining us now on the program is the mayor of Rio Rancho, Greg Hall, here on 96.3 News Radio KKOB. And, Mayor, we've talked a lot about, you know, the jobs that Intel will be adding there at the facility. We've talked about the jobs that will come along because of all of the construction. But you also like to focus on what you call the, uh, the trickle-down. Uh, effect on the local economy in Rio Rancho and the jobs that will be added in the years to come just because of what Intel's doing. Talk a little bit about that. I'm very excited about the fact that, um, you know, when it comes to Intel announcing these jobs, what that's really going to ma- what that's really going to mean for the surrounding businesses. And I mean, you can talk about the small eateries, the local eateries. You can talk about the, um, the the local dry cleaners. Uh, there's a there's a boot and shoe repair uh, little store that's been there forever. That uh, uh, you know, I'm hoping that this is going to have a positive impact on them. I'm highly excited about what that means for for Rio Rancho as a whole. So uh, it, they're just like I say, this is kind of we're the epicenter of the investment, and so you're going to see really the strong waves of, of economic impact 
throughout the community and and this is going to you know have a great impact on Rio Rancho it's going to have a great impact on uh, Albuquerque it's going to have an, a, a great impact on the state of New Mexico because Intel has uh, you know is far reaching in its philanthropy um, in its environmental initiative yeah. uh, in its uh, job creation so I mean it's just there's a, there's there's a lot of great things there you estimate potentially up to 3,500 jobs could be added to the local economy because of the investment Intel's making. Correct. Once again, adding those individuals in the restaurants and, and in some of the local businesses. Now, also, Bob, one of the things that we're going to be laser-focused on is some of the ancillary uh, suppliers that are going to come in alongside with the, you know, whether that's the construction companies or the, you know, the, the tool manufacturers. Uh, some of the other, you know, ancillary suppliers that, that work directly with Intel that don't have a physical presence here in, in New Mexico at this point in time, uh, we'll be looking at opportunities to potentially locate some of those businesses here as well. So we want to look at kind of the broader picture uh, and, and see what we can do to establish some new, some new companies here in New Mexico to support this, uh, to support this process. Uh, and mayor, obviously, the other aspect of this uh, of this announcement is just the timing of it all. I mean, considering everything that we've gone through in the last twelve, thirteen months, I mean, for this announcement to be made now, just as we're starting to reemerge uh, from the pandemic and we're starting to open uh, in New Mexico, I mean, uh, the timing of this kind of announcement is good at any uh, at any moment in our history, but especially right now. Especially now, right now, and I, I was saying this yesterday, is that this is the perfect shot in the arm for some of the local businesses and for the state of New Mexico. Uh, as we're emerging from COVID, uh, there's a lot of small businesses that have really struggled over the past year. And to to have something like this come into the community, I think, is going to be a huge morale booster. And it's also going to mean uh, a, lot of, a lot of the local stores are going to see the absolute potential of uh, of what can happen with this type of uh, investment flowing into the community. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity here. And, uh, you know, we're, we're a community of entrepreneurs. So I, I know there are people already thinking about, Hey, you know, how can, uh, how can I turn this opportunity into, uh, into uh, something uh, for me and for the community? And so there's a lot of people uh, looking for different ways to support this at this point in time. So the timing couldn't have been better. Hope you enjoyed that piece from News Radio KKOB's Bob Clark and Mayor Greg Hull of Rio Rancho. I'm News Radio KKOB's John Summers. Happy to be here sharing these news and public affairs segments with you during Weekend Magazine, a half hour news and public affairs feature heard each weekend at various times on our cluster of Cumulus Media group of stations based here in Albuquerque. If you head to our station website, newsradiokkob.com, you'll learn more about the subjects discussed today. That website, once again, is newsradiokkob.com. Now let's wrap up this weekend's presentation with a segment taken from a recent Brandon Vote show. BV is our evening host on News Radio KKOB, and he's not very happy with this ongoing mask controversy. So we've relaxed some of the mask mandates, and we just aligned with the the CDC. However, there's this there's a real problem here, especially as we get into the summertime with kids playing sports. And I didn't hear enough about this uh, over the last year. Uh, I don't know why people weren't outraged, why parents weren't outraged that their kids were having to wear masks, and we're talking like little kids 
having to wear masks when they play sports. I mean, we just wrapped up the state high school basketball tournament. Thank goodness the governor allowed us to even have one this year. Uh, I shouldn't be so greedy, right? But you had kids out there. These are high schoolers. You had kids out there playing basketball games fully masked, okay? And and you think about what's happened over this last year. We had an entire college basketball schedule and tournament. Nobody was wearing a mask. Now, granted, a lot of that happened even before those kids got vaccinated, right? And, and professionals, too. They were out there playing sports before they were vaccinated. They didn't have to be fully masked. However, the governor in our state is requiring children to continue to wear masks when they play. Now, I mean, I'm sure you've played a basketball game before. Uh, you, you imagine playing a full basketball game with a mask on, having uh, high school football players having to play a full game with their mask on, and then they go home and they watch uh, they watch football and basketball on TV, and none of those guys have to do it. And it was before the vaccine was available to everybody, right? And I know the whole thing with the, you know, kids have just approved the kids and the vaccine. It doesn't matter, especially when we're talking about little kids. I got two kids, one's five, one's seven. They just started playing baseball. One, my five-year-old's in T-ball. And they have to, so they just started, and they have to practice with their mask on, okay? Meanwhile, I can sit in the stands without a mask, now, this is outside. You know how hot it gets in New Mexico in the summertime. And we're just going to continue the charade that, uh, oh, grandma's dying, so we got to put a mask on a five-year-old. Well, guess what? Grandma's already vaccinated. And if grandma isn't vaccinated at this point, that means grandma doesn't want to get vaccinated. So what are we doing here? What, what, what's going on here with this mask mandate for children? And I can't believe there wasn't parents with pitchforks at the state capitol demanding something be done about this. I mean, what what do you have to do to light a fire underneath people in New Mexico? I'm beginning to wonder. You let your kids, your little kids, have to be masked up just to play a game with other kids when it's outside? And I know here in Albuquerque, I haven't heard much about it. People just, oh, just let it. Oh, we got to save Grandma, right? In Las Cruces, though, they're starting to get a little anxious about this. Now, the state is still requiring children to wear masks when they're playing outdoor sports. And this comes to us from uh, uh, KFOX 14 in Las Cruces. Because... Uh, no media station, television station in Albuquerque wants to cover this. So here's here's a story from uh, uh, KFOX in Las Cruces, or El, El Paso, Las Cruces. New tonight, KFOX 14 spoke with parents demanding a change as the state of New Mexico continues to require children to wear masks while they play outdoor sports. KFOX 14 News at 9, Selena Madrid shows us why they say the mask mandate is putting their children's health at risk. As young athletes return to the field, concerns arise. These are healthy children, and I, the mask mandate while they're doing sports is just dangerous. 
It's child abuse and it needs to end now. Kathy Coombs, Jody Redfern, Kelly Jackson, and Jaylene McIntosh all have kids in the Las Cruces Youth Soccer League who are required to wear masks while playing outdoors. They teach you that when you're about to have your first baby not to put a blanket over their their mouth and their nose and that's what we're doing and we're doing it in heat it goes against everything that we are as moms and enough is enough we can't be the only parents that are frustrated about this if we have more people more numbers maybe more people would listen to us and maybe we can get these masks off our babies our governor needs to know that this is not okay then it comes down to our mayor and our city councilors and then to the las cruces youth soccer league yeah, that's uh, from uh, uh, KFOX in uh, El Paso, and they're taking a look at what's going on in Las Cruces, and parents there are fed up with it. I guess in Albuquerque, parents don't care, or they think it's the right thing. Now, the one parent on there calling it child abuse, eh, okay, a, a little over the top, but definitely unnecessary to have children playing Little League and T-ball that are all masked up. And let me tell you, I almost didn't have my kids do it. The only reason I've allowed my kids to do this, they really wanted to do it. You know how last year was. They wanted to do something last year. Of course, they couldn't. So I really hated to take that away from them, them, you know, getting to play baseball this summer. And I do hope that once school is let out, they may relax this too. But I think they're keeping it in effect so they can continue to have kids masked up in schools, which is ridiculous anyway at this point too, right? But after school's out and they still have this on there, I'm going to pull my kids out of out of this baseball thing. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Or I'll just drive to Texas and have them play uh, recreationally there. I'm shocked that there's not a much out, not as much outrage. I mean, maybe New Mexicans are just too beaten up over this whole thing uh, to to raise a stink over anything else. It's it's absurd at this point. I took these concerns straight to the city of Las Cruces, the New Mexico Department of Health, and the Las Cruces Soccer League. We are just following the guidelines that are set by the city of Las Cruces. We had a meeting with um, Parks and Rec and all of the other leagues, and what they told us is that um, you know if they do uh, see that we're not following the COVID protocol, that the leagues um, will get shut down. We won't be able to play. The city of Las Cruces says they're following the New Mexico Athletic Association's guidelines, which states that masks must be worn while playing, and that although the CDC says vaccinated people can do outdoor activities without a mask, currently youth athletes under 16 aren't vaccinated and could still spread COVID-19. We also ask the Department of Health if wearing masks in the summer heat is safe for kids. They say they understand the concern and that those guidelines could change as younger people get vaccinated. We reached out to our viewers on social media about this guidance. More than 3,000 people responded. 86% said masks should not be required and 14% said they should. I'd like to call out our mayor. I'd like to call out our city council. Have some discussions with parents that are not okay with this. Now, that's in Las Cruces. Uh, The media is actually working on that. That's a big bugaboo for a lot of people. Uh, But here in Albuquerque, no. And they're going to hold that, well, the kids can't get vaccinated. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not going to vaccinate my five-year-old, okay? Now, I mean, I'm sure you've played a basketball game before. Uh, you, You imagine playing a full basketball game with a mask on? Having uh, high school football players 
having to play a full game with their mask on, and then they go home and they watch uh, they watch football and basketball on TV, and none of those guys have to do it. And it was before the vaccine was available to everybody, right? And I know the whole thing with the you know kids have just approved the kids and the vaccine. It doesn't matter. Especially when we're talking about little kids. I got two kids, one's five, one's seven. They just started playing baseball. One, my five-year-old's in T-ball. And they have to, so they just started, and they have to practice with their mask on, okay? Meanwhile, I can sit in the stands without a mask. Now, this is outside. You know how hot it gets in New Mexico in the summertime. And we're just going to continue the charade? I'm optimistic that they're only doing this mask charade until schools are out. I'm hoping maybe after that they'll relax the rest of them so you don't have uh, five-year-olds out playing in the New Mexico heat, uh, playing baseball and other sports uh, when they have to be masked up. Now, other states have been a little more proactive on this. Uh, in Iowa, their governor signed a bill that banned mask mandates in schools. They've done that in Texas, too, in a few other states. Of course, we haven't heard anything about this here in the state of New Mexico. And I promise you, if I have to keep my kids masked up at school next year, uh, they're not going to be going to public schools in the state of New Mexico. And, I mean, surely at that point, you know, next this fall, if they're requiring children to be masked up the, the whole time, now if you want to keep some of the other uh, COVID protocols in place by all means, but having kids wear masks at school is pretty ridiculous at this point. That was our 96.3 News Radio KKOB evening host, Brandon Vogt. Hope you enjoyed that. You've just heard Weekend Magazine, a special news and public affairs feature presented by 96.3 News Radio KKOB. I'm John Summers, inviting you to join us again next weekend as we highlight topics that impact your life.